You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Really fortunate today to have with us two distinguished experts. Today we have Dr. Benjamin Tallis, who's with the German Council on Foreign Relations, and we also have Dr. Ulrike Franke, of the European Council on Foreign Relations. So, Ulrike and Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having us. And I think we're both, you're both joining us, uh, Benjamin, you're in Berlin, and Ulrike, I believe you are in Paris, am I correct? Uh, indeed, that's correct. Well, wonderful. So, yes. uh, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the discussion, I'd just like to, um, uh, just to let all our um, listeners know that they, this we're doing a series of Twitter space discussions um, related to uh, global security, human rights, and uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, thanks to the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada and the Canadian Department of National Defense, um, the Montreal Institute for Justice and Human Studies will be hosting the first inaugural Montreal International Security Summit uh, in person in Montreal uh, this October, where we're going to have uh, in person discussions with global thinkers on these issues. Um, so we thank Conrad Adenauer Stiftung that's uh, listening in for supporting this project. And we also have uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute in Canada and the European Council on Foreign Relations that are going to be partnering with us at this in-person event. So we're really, really pleased to um, to be working towards that. But, um, but I'd like to get right into uh, the discussion with uh, Benjamin and Ulrike. Um, so I'll just read out some questions and then we'll we'll go to the audience a little bit later. But the development of a national security strategy uh, is an exercise that governments around the globe have long been doing. Why is this Germany's first national security strategy? I'd really like to, to know why is it the first one? And maybe we'll start off with um, with Benjamin and go to Ulrike and just have your, your opening thoughts on this. Certainly. Thanks very much indeed. Um, I think it's no secret that uh, hard security hasn't been among the strong points of Germany's strategic culture in uh, in the last uh, few years, particularly since the end of the Cold War period. In fact, um, de deprioritizing that has been part of the strategic culture. And so Germany was really playing catch up when um, geopolitical push came to shove and Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine really exposed the need uh, for such a strategy. But with that being said, this was actually foreseen just before that in the coalition agreement of the current governing parties. So in late 2021, it was foreseen that Germany should have such a national security strategy. Um, there's all sorts of reasons we could go into historical, cultural or so on. But I think the primary reason for being a latecomer to this particular party uh, had to do with the prioritization over geoeconomics and the notion of using power in denial rather than overt power in international affairs. Thanks, ben. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and if, oh. I, if I can jump in right here. I mean, honestly, I think the, the main answer really is that it didn't feel quite necessary uh, for a very long time to have such a strategy just because, you know, Germany was surrounded by friends and allies. It's a kind of famous phrase. Uh, there was this idea that somehow everything was kind of going our way. The end of history had started. You know, globalization would transform everybody into uh, liberal democracies. And, and this was a widely shared belief. And, and as Benjamin alluded to, you know, a lot of us, the emphasis was placed on kind of trade relationships and economics. And, and so 
strategic thinking just wasn't something that was kind of high up on the list of, of, of things to do and kind of, you know, security thinking, neither. Um, I mean, we did have white books, right? So it's not as if we didn't have any kind of documents um, and, and white books are actually more kind of defense focused than, than this strategy is, which is, which is wider ranging. So, but yeah, it, it, basically I think it didn't feel quite necessary and it was this, this government when they came into office or when they kind of negotiated the coalition treaty, they said, you know, I think that we think that the times have changed and indeed they had, uh, and we need to think about all of this more strategically and kind of connect the dots. And then of course, you know, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened and kind of really show that that more more such thinking was was necessary so you know the the titan have bended a little bit in that in that regard that that there is an understanding that more at least you know more thinking needs to needs to be done thank you Enrique. when you, you talk about the lack of strategic thinking it, it makes me also think about my country that that's kind of caught up in the exact same um caught flat-footed and now it's trying to get up to speed um I'd like to ask every everyone who's listening in if you could please share the link to this to get a few more people onto the Twitter spaces. And if you haven't, please follow Benjamin and Enrique, follow the Twitter accounts. They're really, um, really give us, uh, they're really important people to follow to give us a pulse of what's happening in Germany with regards to foreign policy and global security. Um, I'd like to turn to the next question. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed Germany to undertake what Chancellor Olaf Scholz described as and I, I, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the, the Zeitenwende, um, a revision or shift of Germany's foreign and security policy. Looking at the national security strategy, how much did the war in Ukraine really influence uh, its thinking and content, especially since the document adopts a broad definition of the term security? Benjamin? Yes, very good question. Uh, the Zeitenwende is not yet as familiar a German word as kindergarten or blitzkrieg, but I'm sure we'll we'll get there. Um, I actually lead a group for the um, German Council on Foreign Relations called the Action Group Zeitenwende, which is trying to understand a lot of these questions that are related to these issues and to explore Germany's geostrategic choices accordingly. accordingly. And we asked members of that group um, to say whether they thought in a brief sort of unscientific poll, but just to gauge a little bit of their expert opinion, we asked them to say whether they thought the national security strategy was a fitting expression of um, the Titan vendor or met the challenges uh, posed by the Titan vendor. And the vast majority said no. Um, I think this is, it's really telling that this national security strategy seems to want to do everything, but doesn't tell us how it's going to do practically anything. And while it raises a lot of issues and has this, um, this very interesting concept at its heart of integrated security, which I think has a lot of potential, it remains potential for the moment because it doesn't make choices, it doesn't give priorities, it doesn't show how priorities would be funded, and it doesn't really give timelines for key um, elements of of what is what is not really even a strategy, I would say, and I'd be interested to hear Ulrika's description of that, but it's more of a description of a, a situation and of a set of circumstances. And in that, it's quite good, but that's still reactive rather than seizing the initiative. And there's there's a lot more I could say on that, uh, but I'd be interested to hear Ulrika's views too. Yeah, so two, two points on that. So first of all, and this is something I keep repeating, so I'm sure people have heard me say this, but the Zeitenwende, I think it's important to note Olaf Scholz didn't actually coin the phrase Zeitenwende to describe, as you just said, a revision or shift of German defense and security policy. What he called and calls the Zeitenwende is the kind of changes of the world 
outside, right? So he basically stated that that Zeitenwende was happening. So it's much less active than I think many commentators made it sound afterwards. Of course, in this famous speech on the 27th of February, um, Olaf Scholz did announce a bunch of things. So, so yes, there were also policy changes, but the Zeitenwende isn't actually a kind of portmanteau for this this specific um, policy shift, but rather a statement of of fact. And it just, I think this this tells us something about uh, their approach. But you you ask, you know, did the Zeitenwende, did the did the invasion of Ukraine influence this um, strategy, which, as we said, you know, was announced and was planned before that happened? And I'm going to say yes. I mean, it's really interesting because when you read the strategy, it's not as if you know the the invasion of Ukraine is front and center. Yes, of course, you know, today's Russia is seen as the most immediate threat to security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's all, 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 you know, logical. But it's not as if this is the main, the main topic. Um, but nevertheless, I believe that this strategy would have looked very different, or could have looked very different without the the invasion of Ukraine. And I just had a um, piece out for for Defense News last week that, that that made exactly this argument, where I say, you know, when you read the strategy, and if you are someone like me who also read, you know, the French and the German, the the English and the um, American national security strategy, when you read the German national security strategy, you kind of think, yeah, that that you know sounds more or less reasonable. That reads relatively similarly to to these other card countries and strategies. And I think this fact in and of itself is actually noteworthy. And I think this is how you see that the war in Ukraine really has made a difference. It's kind of certain normalization of the German thinking, because there's very little of this, you know, what I kind of felt was was quite a, a hubris um, of, of Germany that kind of had this idea of, you know, we know things better and we've abandoned, we've moved beyond the, the kind of militaristic thinking of the others and we're more, more enlightened than anyone else and, and, and all of that. That's no longer in there. And I think that's because of the, the invasion in Ukraine. So, yes, I think the strategy would have looked very different or would have looked different, at least, without the, the invasion. Um, same on kind of arms control. I mean, it kind of it just feels more more realistic, more kind of grounded in, in reality, a bit more sober. Um, so so there's a certain normalization going on. Kyle, Kyle, can I just jump in back on that a second? Because I think that's that's both interesting Please. and important. Please, um, Mr. Benjamin. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, so in it, Ulrike, you put your finger on something about whether the we are the objects or the subjects of the Titan vendor. Is it something that happens to us or something we do? And the conflation of that comes from that initial speech by Olaf Scholz, as you mentioned. And the in that speech, the key aspects of the response to those changing times, which themselves also became known under the rubric of the Titan vendor, were support to Ukraine, commitment to diversify energy supplies and remove dependency on Russian gas, a wider shift in Russia policy as part of a changed uh, approach to dealing with authoritarian states, and a, a bolstering of Germany's role in the EU and NATO, anchored by this special 100 billion fund to strengthen the Bundeswehr. So all of that became conditions against which, or criteria against which, the Titan vendor as a process, the Titan vendor as an act, could actually be judged. And while those are all mentioned in the national security strategy, I think it's wrong to actually draw the, the direct comparison and say this looks like a reasonable strategy when compared to, for example, the UK integrated review, which much more clearly sets priorities, clearly sets timelines. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily got the right priorities, but at the same time, it is much clearer on how to achieve those things that are mentioned. 
The other thing I think is noteworthy in this regard is um, the mantra-like repetition throughout the document of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. This is features about 14 times in exactly that formulation throughout the document. And that's often put together with a, a, an understanding that Germany has a special responsibility, and I quote from the document there, uh, a special responsibility for European security. And I, I don't see how that document sets out how Germany will live up to that responsibility. Fascinating. Um, so I'd like to get a bit more into um, the issue where many people say that Germany got its Russia policy wrong, um, more so than any other European country. How does the national security strategy reflect a change of vision and policy towards Russia? Um, uh, you've given us some some comments on this, Benjamin, but 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 how how does it reflect a, a real change in vision and policy towards uh, towards Russia? Well, I think there's a there's elements of continuity as well as change. Um, and that's that's an unfortunate uh, thing that I think we have to rec reckon with and grapple with. Um, what has changed is that Russia is clearly seen as um, as an adversary, as a power to be defended against rather than cooperated with. Uh, although there are some questions as for how long that will remain the case. The strategy is clear on that and that that I give credit for. What doesn't change in particular is the the attitude of seeing Central and Eastern Europe through the lens of Russia, which is very prevalent in the document because it doesn't actually mention Central and Eastern Europe at all. Um, there's only three, um, three allies mentioned specifically, which are the United States, France and Israel. No Central Eastern European country gets a mention. And given that's one of the places where Germany needs to do most to rebuild trust as a result of having got its Russia policy so badly wrong, that was for me a really surprising omission and not one that will do it any favours. In, in the capitals that are well disposed to Germany, such as Prague and Bratislava or um, Tallinn, as well as in places that are more um, antagonistic towards Berlin at the moment, such as Warsaw. So this, this is a really unfortunate element of continuity. The other thing I think is problematic in terms of continuity is the mixed attitude um, and the real tension or, or confusion we can see on what to do with authoritarian regimes. The document talks both about aiming for multipolarity and also about a systemic rivalry. And it's systemic rivalry in particular with China, but this also applies to other, other authoritarian states. And it seems as though there's two clear impulses in the document, one coming more from the foreign ministry and from the Greens, which would be the one towards systemic rivalry, i.e. facing up to and standing up to authoritarians, and then one coming from the chancellery, who are still ultimately calling the shots in German foreign and security policy, that really looks to play that down and seeks a more multipolar uh, view of the world. And so this hedging um, is also not going to do much in terms of guaranteeing a long-term Russia policy that is better than what went before. Uh, I'd like to turn to uh, Ulrike. Um, Ulrike, how does Germany plan to work with its NATO and EU allies and partners in the near future, especially in Ukraine? Yeah, so that, that kind of follows from what Ben said, because I disagree a little bit on, on this question of mentioning of partners, especially in Europe. So Ben's right. There are, there are kind of two man, main allies mentioned, France and the US, and Israel is mentioned, um, well, because of, of the matter, of course. Um, but indeed, other than France and the US as the kind of main allies, you know, US, transatlantic, and France and Europe, no other countries are, are mentioned. And I, you know, I initially also thought, you know, that's, that's probably not a good idea. I mean, 
for example, the Netherlands have basically integrated their military in the German one, you would reckon that that you know deserves a mention in this this strategy um poland is of course a super important partner eastern european partner also building up its military capabilities enormously so you could also mention this the problem and i know that this is one of the reasons why the the writers decided not to to mention anyone else the moment you go beyond france because in france is kind of obvious you know it's the kind of the, the the original enemy throughout history and then this great story of reconciliation and now the most important partner so you mentioned france that that's clear but the moment you go beyond france and europe everyone else kind of comes up and says why not us why do you mention the netherlands and not us why do you mention poland and not us you know should we should we have mentioned the the, the baltics or you know other central european partners that indeed play an enormous role probably maybe but then you know italy comes and says you know come on we're kind of one of the most important countries in europe so so it kind of goes on and on and so this i think this was the this was the reasoning and you know you may not like it but i can kind of see I can see the reasoning because, you know, otherwise you kind of start to play favorites or you or you just mention everybody and it becomes completely um, uh, meaningless. And um, one just final point on that, though, what's really interesting, actually, is that the United Kingdom is mentioned once. And for me, this is really a kind of Brexit hurt our feelings uh, thing. But anyway, and then the second point I wanted to make, um, because Ben mentioned multipolarity, and that was actually that's one of the, the things I criticize in this strategy, other than as was already pointed out, yes, there are many kind of statements as to, or analysis as to, you know, this is how the world is, but not that many proposals as to, you know, how do we respond to this and solutions and priorities. But anyway, on the multipolarity point, I think this is an important one because the strategy states, we are living in an age of increasing multipolarity. And that actually surprised me that they would use the term. Um, and it surprised me because multipolarity as a kind of term has become something that, you know, China and Russia and, and other countries like that use in order to challenge US and Western hegemony, right? So it's this kind of saying that, you know, there are other players and, and you guys aren't the most important ones or only ones and you need to listen more to more to us. And I wouldn't have expected Germany to to use the term. Now, I think what they are trying to do is basically give a nod to the increasing number of countries that yes are are gaining in influence and i'm not i don't mean you know china or or, or russia although russia i guess is losing um but but you know brazil uh the, the kind of you know the the um the BRICS countries uh, the the kind of increasingly big uh, countries and big economies that are that are coming up and want to have a bigger say and i think germany wanted to acknowledge this i still don't think it's a good idea that they've used the term multipolarity i would think that in washington they aren't particularly happy with you know this term having been used um so so yeah that that i thought was quite interesting um so your question was was kind of going beyond and then kind of how to how to work with other uh, european uh, partners i mean i got to say i I like the way that the strategy phrased this question of kind of how to work with Europeans within NATO and within the EU. I think it was relatively clear, um, but it also gives a rather clear preference to NATO, I would say. It basically said, you know, when it comes to European defense, it's NATO and you know, the EU is important and we're going to improve um, and we've got to keep working um, in this in this area. And, I, you know, the European Union is mentioned 80 times. So it's clearly a, a priority. But when it comes to defense, it's still primarily NATO. And so 
European strategic autonomy isn't mentioned, European sovereignty isn't mentioned. That surprised me because that was still in the in the coalition treaty. So I think it's a bit of a um, situation where where the writers have said. We, we think that, yes, long-term European defense need to be ensured more through the EU and, and, and the Europeans. And we're, of course, working with our partner in, uh, to support Ukraine. But in the end, you know, right now, it's still the transatlantic relationship. It's NATO. I, um, I just wanted to turn to the issue of EU expansion, uh, including the possible integration of Ukraine. Um, into the EU. What does the German document say? How much did the war influence Germany's vision on Ukraine as a possible EU member? Yeah, thank, thanks, Carl. Let me link that actually to the question of NATO as well, because these, these two things are going to, in practice, be very much connected. So um, taking the EU enlargement question first, uh, it's well known that the, the two major roadblocks to um, offering Ukraine a can, uh, endorsing Ukraine's uh, request for candidacy status last year, late in Berlin and in Paris. Both of those were overcome, um, but perhaps grudgingly so. And particularly, there's, there's still a lot of reticence in Berlin about going too fast with this, about uh, making sure that accession is merit-based and so on. And I think it's, it's important that that isn't used as an excuse to go soft or go slow on uh, Ukraine's membership of the EU, which will fundamentally be um, essential for, for ensuring that the, uh, the recovery and reconstruction process goes, goes ahead, continuing to have that incentive there to be able to save or salvage a possibility of a better future from their brave struggle for survival is really important in making sure that the reward and, reward and reform cycle, uh, this virtuous cycle of making positive changes to come closer to gain the benefits of integration, um, actually takes place and gets hold in a, in a serious way. This is, however, really connected to, to NATO membership. Um, but I'll say that in just a second, because what the um, security strategy also said in what is a, a classic move for this strategy, gives with one paragraph and takes away with the next, is that it says Germany supports Ukraine's um, accession to the European Union. And then the next paragraph talks about the necessity of treaty reform in order to manage enlargement. Now, treaty reform is almost a non-starter in many other capitals in Europe, especially those who most strongly support Ukraine's European integration. But it seems as though Berlin is really digging its heels in over this, and there may be, may be trouble ahead there. How this connects to NATO membership is that... Um, Without the kind of security assurances, there are no security guarantees, there are only um, things close to it, and NATO is the closest we can get. Um, without that kind of security assurance, uh, there will be no none of the necessary investment, particularly from the private sector, that is absolutely crucial to Ukraine's reconstruction and recovery, and um, without which... Um, Ukraine won't be able to focus on making the reforms that it needs to make. Moreover, if it's if we rely on a strategy of just arming Ukraine, um, the extent to which we'd have to do that and the extent to which Ukraine would have to focus on uh, defending itself from Russia would potentially open the rise towards a kind of garrison state focused almost entirely on security of the hardest kind and not necessarily sustaining the kinds of pro positive and progressive reforms that we've seen taking place in the last couple of years, even during the war. So I think this question of NATO enlargement together with... Uh, European Union enlargement. They do come together, but that's not addressed in the strategy at all. There is nothing on NATO enlargement to include Ukraine in the strategy, which very much fits with Berlin's positioning, as confirmed by Olaf Scholz last week, which is indeed a position of focusing on arming Ukraine rather than including it in our 
security frameworks. And that's something that's being challenged by other uh, European capitals, including now Paris, interestingly. Ulrike, would you, do you have anything to add or should we go to the next question? Uh, I can just briefly say I was I was a little bit surprised actually that the EU integration um, element was addressed in the in the strategy and it is you know the first part of the sentence is actually really clear it says you know the federal government supports further EU integration cohesion and enlargement to include the Western Balkan states Ukraine the Republic of Moldova and in the longer term Georgia. Now I. I understand what Ben says when he says, you know, it kind of gives in one sentence and takes away in the next, because indeed it does continue that in order to prepare the EU for this enlargement and to ensure its continued ability to act, reform within the EU are essential. And if that means treaty change, it's going to be extremely difficult. I got to say, though, if we're going to take on or take in that many more countries, including a country as big as Ukraine, I kind of agree that changes in the EU will be essential. Otherwise, you know, this really is gonna, it's not going to work. So I think it's fair to have it here. How exactly this is going to look like? Who knows? Can it be done without having treaty changes? Well, you're going to need EU lawyers to, to answer this. But I can kind of see, like, if you really want to take in these countries, you will have to reform the EU. Otherwise, you know, it really doesn't work. We're talking things about, you know, agricultural subsidies and, and majority voting and, and things like that. So so I kind of feel with the with the office here, like, I, I, I think I would have said the same thing. If, if the idea is to integrate these countries, you will need reform. Um, I'm going to, we're, we're right at about the 30 minute mark and, and we tend to keep our, uh, our Twitter spaces around that for, cause it, cause we find it's a nice time frame. I, I'd like to end with, with one last question that I'd like you both to answer. Um, what has surprised you the most about Germany's security and foreign policy decisions since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia? The most positive surprise has been public opinion and the public demand for Germany to do more and to do better. European security, particularly for Ukraine, but also to stand up and take responsibility itself for uh, European security in a meaningful way. And that means burden sharing, uh, it means developing hard power capabilities. And we can see that those who go fastest on this, such as the new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, um, actually attract a lot of public support. He's consistently the most popular politician in Germany, far ahead of Olaf Scholz, who is um, taking a much more slow approach. So this um, this desire among the German public for Germany to stand up and do more and to actually embrace the realities of the new world in which we live in, but also to shape that by taking a truly strategic look. That's the most positive surprise to me. The most negative surprise has been the, the clinging to the, the world of yesterday by some of those who are in charge of making key decisions. Um, the Chancellery going as slow as it possibly can on delivering weapons, on upgrading the kinds of weapons that it does deliver, on committing to uh, Ukraine's victory, which it still hasn't fully done, although there's good language on that in, in the strategy. Um, so this, this battle between the positive public demand for change, for real meaningful change that could protect Germany's values and actively look after its interests, um, and the contrast between that and those who still haven't got the memo, but unfortunately are calling shots, those are the biggest surprises for me. Thanks, Benjamin. Ulrike, I'd like to, to, to give uh, the floor to you. Yeah, I think for me the biggest surprises were um, the the weapon deliveries. So first, I was surprised at how reticent Germany was, and the kind of weird discussions we had about 
you know, helmets and defensive weapons versus offensive ones and um, light versus heavy and things like that, which was really annoying. But then at one point it felt as if a kind of switch was, was switched and, and, you know, things really moved forward. So I think that that surprised me. Also just the, the, the level of debate that not, that not necessarily the, the level, but the, 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 the fact that this was debated so much and so publicly, I think that's actually a good thing, even though, you know, some of these talk shows were really absolutely terrible, but nevertheless, some were actually really good. And it, it kind of helps that we are having these discussions more. This also helps with a kind of slow change in view of the view of the kind of defense industry. Uh, in, in general as well. This was for a long time, you know, something I was seen really negatively. Um, and, and now there's a kind of recognition that, you know, arms can also serve to some, for, can be good for something and, and we can we can use those. So that's one. What also surprised me was the way how the Greens changed their their position. Um, and, and kind of how, let's put it this way, how coherent the change of positions within the Green Party was. It wasn't a 180 as in, you know, we throw overboard all of our beliefs. I thought it was actually quite coherent the way they kind of made the argument and also that these arguments were, were made. And so I think that that surprised me in a positive way. Um, I was, I don't know whether I was surprised by this, but, but I'm, 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 I was disappointed and I'm still disappointed by the communication um, of the German government and most specifically really by Olaf Scholz's communication. I mean, there were so many moments where Germany was actually doing the right thing and was communicating this so badly that it really became this this thing to criticize Germany um, in, in a way that, that wasn't justified, as critical as I've been of this, this government. So communication has been absolutely terrible. It's getting slightly better now with Pistorius and others, but nevertheless, that, that has been really bad. And that kind of, to me, also shows that, yeah, Germany probably isn't able, isn't quite able yet to take on a real leadership um, as in kind of a leading role where you, where you, you know, convince others and guide others and, and things like that, because for that, you most importantly need communication, and we don't really have that yet. Well, I want to thank you, Ulrike and Benjamin, for joining us today to talk about Germany's new security strategy in the war in Ukraine. It was fascinating. Um, great to have you, and, and love to have you come in person to Montreal if you have time next October. We'll follow up with you. I want to thank the Konrad Adenhauer Stiftung, um, for sponsoring this this discussion. Um, and uh, just if you're not following Benjamin and Ulrike, please give them a follow. They're, they're really important voices talking about these issues. And, and we thank you, Ulrike and Benjamin, for joining us today. Thank you.